Thank you very much, Bronwyn. It's really good to be here at Eltham again. Um, the other times that I've been here have been on Wednesday nights, and uh, it's really lovely to be here with you on a Sunday morning. Um, last week I was at Hurstbridge, and I, I apologised for starting off by talking about my book. <laughs> I, um, I always cringe a bit when people get up and talk about their books, but... Uh, I just want to mention it really quickly, and I, I want you to notice um, I, I wrote the title last year during the football season, and I was right for this year. Um, my, my, uh, I wondered why my young son told me, my younger son is actually 50, I wondered why he told me it was a good book and I'm sure it was just the title that he read being a Richmond supporter. It's not about Richmond, it's, um, it's a book that's written because I was really challenged in my own heart about the relationship between fear and anger. As we look around the world and we see so much anger and violence and that sort of thing and among individuals and among nations, the question is why? What gives some people permission to be violent and aggressive? And, uh, and I believe that the, the answer is fear. In fact, it was right here in this hall that that was impacted on me a couple of years ago when I was speaking to uh, a men's group. I think there were 80 or 90 men here each Wednesday night and and I used to get them in groups and I asked them to, to think about what was, the, what was the most painful emotions known to, to men. What do men struggle with the most? And the two that, that became nominated almost by the whole group were fear and anger. A fear and, and guilt. Fear and shame. And that was right, you see, because that's biblical. When uh, Adam and Eve had sinned and were in the garden and God was walking in the garden and asked them why they had hidden, they said, we are afraid and ashamed. And uh, these men felt that these were two of the, if not the most, two of the most painful emotions known to men in our, in our society. So that's what I've written about, but I haven't written it as a textbook, um, mainly because I don't have enough letters after my name and nobody would read it. Um, I, I've actually written it as a, as a fable or an allegory, and, uh, and it's uh, an invitation for readers to explore the issues within the context of the story. So um, I just uh, want you to know it's down there on the table. If you would like to buy it, that's fine. Uh, if you can't do that today but you would like it, Korong, sell it, or you can get it online at Amazon, or you can buy it as an e-book through Amazon or Korong. So just to let you know all of those things and... I hope I've impressed all the young people by knowing about ebook. Uh, 
Have you ever noticed how relevant the Scriptures are? That when you read them and, and you know that they were written so long ago and some of them deal with stories that go back a long, long way, the relevance of the Scripture just hits you every time. And for, I don't know, maybe the several hundredth time, I found myself reading Philippians chapter 3 and being just so impressed by how relevant it was for today. And I wanted to share some of it with you. I, I, I wanted to put you in the context of chapter 3 first. Paul, of course, is writing to the Christians in Philippi and he's writing from a Roman prison and uh, he is warning the Christians there, these young first-generation Christians, he's warning them about the danger of being distracted in their walk with God. He said, you've started your walk with God, you, you know him as your saviour, you're, you're on fire for Christ, but there's some dangers here that you might get distracted along the way. And he uses two illustrations of possible distractions. One of them is that uh, he says, don't be distracted by these men who are going around teaching that if you're a Gentile Christian and you've come to the Lord, you're not saved unless you are circumcised like the Jewish people were. Are. And he said, uh, be careful of them. In fact, he was a bit rough on them. He called them dogs. And, uh, and he said, uh, be careful of these dogs because they're, they're talking about cutting your flesh in order to make you right with God. And that isn't true. You are right with God because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he has redeemed you and he has saved you. So be careful you don't get distracted by false doctrine. That's fairly relevant, isn't it? It's easy today for, for people to make, try to make the gospel more palatable to society and to water it down and to get rid of the hard bits. Be careful of false doctrine. And then the second example he uses is he, he, he talks about the people who put great confidence in the things that... that uh, that they have done or the experiences of they've had or their background or their upbringing. And he says this uh, as he talks about it. He says, I could, of course, put my trust in such things. If anyone thinks he trusts in external ceremonies, I have even more reason to feel that way. I was circumcised when I was a week old. I am an Israelite by birth of the tribe of Benjamin, a pure-blooded Hebrew. As far as keeping the Jewish law is concerned, I was a Pharisee. And I was so zealous that I persecuted the church. As far as a person can be righteous by obeying the commands of the law, I was without fault. And so he says, I've got a lot to commend me. Uh, as a person because for a start I was circumcised in the first week of my life. That's really obeying the law 
to the letter. My parents knew how to, uh, how to obey the law. I was born into the tribe of Benjamin. I, I'm an elitist. I, I'm so proud of being a Hebrew, but even more proud of being in the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a true Hebrew, meaning he was legalistic <laughs> in those days. I kept the law to the letter. He was self-righteous. I was zealous for his religion, persecuting the church, and he did that violently. But he looked, he looked back on all of these things and said, these are the things that some people would commend me for. The enemies of the cross would commend me for these things. But he, he goes on and says, but now I count them all as loss in order that I may gain Christ. Now, I've been around just a few years, nearly 80, and I've been in pastoral ministry for 60 of those years. And I want to say that one of the most common things that I have experienced in church life and church leadership is the pain that congregations experience when a person or people begin to count as important things that compared to Christ are not important. Do you understand what I mean? And it can be even good things. How often have I heard arguments in churches about music and the songs, the modern songs, the hymns? How often I've heard doctrinal arguments. When I was in college, I'd die for some of the doctrines I stood for, all of which are unimportant compared to knowing Jesus. And I... I, we went to a church some years ago to be the senior pastor and they had had a massive conflict before we arrived. And in fact, uh, the day we arrived, a hundred people left because they were angry with the elders, not for appointing me, but just they were angry at the elders. I saw families divided. I saw mothers and fathers leaving the church and the young people staying. I saw brothers leaving the church and brothers staying, torn apart by, by the fact that the current pastor had wanted to change the constitution. What a dreadful thing to do. And yet it was enough to split the church because the constitution had become more important to some of the people in that church than Jesus had. They were not seeking to know him better. They were not seeking to draw closer to God. They were seeking to defend a principle, an idea, a thing that in its place is good and right and proper but it is not as important as Jesus is. This is a relevant passage of Scripture, brothers and sisters, because it's so easy for us to get distracted by things that we give great importance to and take our eyes off pursuing Jesus. 
A little later in this chapter, Paul talks about what he's done with all of this. He says, forgetting what is behind, I press forward toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is, I'm, I've got my eyes on being more Christ-like. I've got my eyes on being able to reflect Jesus to the world in my life. I want people to see Jesus in me. I want my Roman captives here in this Roman prison, captors, I want them to see Christ in me. I want them to come into my cell every morning and know that they're in the presence of God. That's what I want. And he wasn't going to allow anything to distract him from that. In this passage, he also says something else, something that is really powerful. He said, oh, that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. <laughs> He'd been a Christian for 30 years by this time. And his prayer was, oh, that I might know Christ more, in, increasingly more. That's what he's saying. I just want to know him more and more and better. I was often tickled by this verse because it, I think if you and I had written it, we would have written it the other way round. Do you notice what he says? He says, Oh, that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Didn't his sufferings come first? If, you, if I had written it, I would have said, Oh, that I might know the fellowship of his sufferings being made conform to his death and the power of his resurrection. That's the right order, isn't it? But not for Paul. Paul knew that he could never understand the relevance of the death and resurrection, the suffering and the death of Christ until he had experienced in his own life the power of the resurrection. He had been raised from death to life by the same power that had raised Jesus from the dead. He wanted to know that resurrection power. That was his passion. That was his hunger. And then he could, he could be in fellowship with the sufferings of, of Jesus. And he was. In prison, he suffered for Christ. And he knew that shortly he would die in that place and he would be conformed to his death. But he did it all because he had the, the hope of, of, of life after death as well. That was his passion. Paul could have been talking about lots of things writing to the Philippians. He could have been telling them how to run a church. He could have been telling them how to appoint elders he could have talked about deacons. He could have talked about communion. He could have talked about marriage. He could have talked about a whole lot of good things. But what he talked about was don't lose your passion for knowing Jesus. You know, I, I, I know here that today I'm speaking to people of all age groups. And, and I want to say to, to you young people there are many choices 
for you to make many decisions, for you to make in, in these years. Choices that have to do with education, decisions that have to do with the vocation, the t decisions that have to do with life partners, big decisions. But if you focus on those issues so that Jesus doesn't get a Guernsey, if you're focusing on those issues so that, that Jesus begins to decline in importance in your life, then the chances are you will make the wrong decision. Choices are what we make. In fact, in fact, our whole lives are often dictated to by the choices we make. Some people suffer 20, 30 years after decisions that they have made. We've all made wrong choices at some time in our life. But when we spend time focusing on who Jesus is, when we're getting to know him as, as our personal friend and personal saviour, when we enthrone him in our lives as our king of kings, then when we come to make decisions and choices, we're going to pause long enough to hear what God might say to us about them. And sometimes, young people, he will speak to you through the Bible Sometimes he will speak directly to you by his Holy Spirit. And sometimes he will speak to you through the counsel of godly men or women. But pause always before you make decisions and, and listen to what God has to say about it. He is interested in every part of your life. He is greatly interested in how you, how you fulfill his purpose for you. He has a purpose and a plan for your life. And I, I, I actually can tell you what God's will is for your life. You know what? It'll cost you. <laughs> no, it won't cost you. I can tell you exactly what God's will is for your life because the Bible says, this is the will of God for you. Even your sanctification. Now, that's a big word, but that just simply means setting myself apart to God. That's his will. Give yourself totally to him, and then all those other things will work out. And Jesus said the same thing. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you understand that? That, that we, we've got to do things in reverse to everybody else. Everybody else will say, worry about this, worry about this, focus on that. But what God is saying is, focus on me, seek me. Seek me as your friend, your saviour, your Lord, your king, and all the things that you would normally worry about, 
you will know what to do. You will understand the choices that you need to make. And I'm speaking to people who uh, are older. I'm speaking today to people who have still have the responsibility of parenting. Speaking to Blair before, and he's got a new one to practice on. And that's good news. But I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I wanna say to you, there's a lot of wisdom needed in parenting, is there not? And a lot of patience and a lot of grace. Where do you get that from? Well, God teaches us patience by giving us children. We don't, you, don't, you can't come to God and say, God, make me patient. He, if you do, he'll send you something. <laughs> something that will test you, something that will try your patience. That's how your patience grows. That's how we grow in grace. And, uh, and I want to say to you parents, the wisdom that we need for our children, and Julia and I now have 14 grandchildren and two great-grandchildren as well. And, uh, and, and you know, there's a, a lovely sense in which you... you you know, I think God gave us children so we could practice how to be good grandparents. <laughs> yeah. Um, because you don't have to do the things you do when you're parents. It's a different sort of wisdom. It's a wisdom to keep your mouth shut sometimes. It's a wisdom to listen. It's a wisdom to know that these children are being guided and directed in appropriate ways and our job is to support them and love them and spoil them rotten. And, uh, but, but through life, we need different types of wisdom for different types of situations. I want to speak to those who are, are much older than that. Nearly, I can't see anybody here as old as me, so I'm allowed to say this. Being an elderly person is a tremendous privilege. It's tremendous. Don't, 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 don't grizzle about being old. We are in the best stage of our life. We, we are able to, to do the things that for so many years we didn't have the time to do, like breakfast in bed. We, we, we are at a great time of life, but spiritually it's a tremendous time as well because God has a lot of things to say to older people. He's wanting us to be mentors and fathers and mothers to the Christians who are coming behind. He wants us to be people who, who can encourage and, and direct and guide those younger people in the truth. I, I, I spoke to a man some years ago. He was probably uh, in his late 60s, early 70s. And I said to him, you know, you need to be a mentor to the young men in this church. And he said, well, I can't do that. I said, why, why can't you do that? He said, because I never had a mentor myself. I have no idea how to mentor people. Well, that's tragic. I think once we're beyond 40 years of age in a church, 
We should be seriously as men and women putting ourselves out there to mentor and encourage people. But don't do it if you're grisly and grumpy. Do it because you're on fire for God. Do it because you're seeking God to know Him more every day, even now. You don't know it all. In fact, the older you get, the more you realise you don't know much. Of all the knowledge there is in the world, you know this tiny little bit. But you know enough to come alongside somebody and say, hey, it's going to be all right. I'm going to be praying for you and I, I'm going to be standing with you while you go through this issue. I've been there. I know that God will bring you through. This, i uh, finish with this, but this Wednesday I'm speaking at a funeral service of a man who has been extremely successful in his life and all through that life he has been a devoted follower of Jesus. So it will be a privilege to speak at this man's funeral, but, but while we were having a family gathering talking about it and the sons were, the son was there and the daughter was there and the daughter-in-law and the son-in-law and we're all gathered around the table talking about their dad. One of the men looked at me and said, Graham, I know that you went through a great grief two years ago, you and Julia, when you lost your granddaughter. I know that, but I know that because of that, you will be able to identify with grieving people in a way that perhaps others might struggle to. We have had older men and women, we have had experiences in life that have equipped us for knowing that God can be trusted and that God is sovereign. That's my encouragement to you today, to focus on who Jesus is, to get to know him better, to get to know him outside of the formal structures of theology. I love theology, but theology can lead you down the garden path and away from God unless you are very careful. Real theology is what tells us who God is. And once we know who God is, we want to know him better. Is that right? We don't necessarily get to know who God is and say, now I need to know more theology. If we're already there, that's where we're going to get our theology from, is from the God who has made us, redeemed us, adopted us, and filled us with his spirit. What a wonderful God. What a wonderful God. I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads and uh, pray with me. But I, I'm going to suggest that as we do that, that you might pray your own prayer in your own heart to God. Some of you will want to thank him that 
that you are walking with him moment by moment and day by day and that you are getting to know him better in your lives and that you're hearing him speak into your life about choices and decisions. You want to thank him for that. You want to say, Father, thank you for the place that I'm at right now where I can hear you, where I know your presence, where I feel the peace that you have given to me. And then some of you may, may have been distracted. You know that there are things in your life right now that have taken over your thinking, your mind, your heart. You're totally distracted from God. You know that. And you know that the relationship between you and God is distant. Haven't talked to him for a while. You haven't listened to what he has to say. And so tonight, today, you may want to pray, Father, I want to come back to that place where knowing you is the most important thing in my life. And then there are some here today who have been distracted by real issues, real, real reversals in your life, going through an illness maybe or someone you love is going through an illness or you're going through grief, whatever it might be. And, and you know, it's like God hasn't turned up when you would have liked him to. You've prayed and it's like he hasn't answered your prayer. I want to encourage you today to, to make a reconnect with God. Just to reconnect and say, God, I, despite what's happening in my life right now, I know that you are my father and that you are good. And I ask you right now, right at this moment, to refocus my eyes on you. I know, I know that all things work together for the good of those who love you. And I'm going to trust you right now that in the situation that I find myself in, it will work for the good. I trust you with my heart and my life and my will and my way. So Father, we thank you that you have blessed us this morning as we've gathered together and thank you for this beautiful mix of people and age groups and Lord, this is the way you do it. You just draw us together and draw us to you that we might be blessed by your presence and blessed by the fellowship that we enjoy together. We want to give you all the thanks and praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.